Very Bad Wizards is a podcast with a philosopher, my dad, and a psychologist, Dave Pizarro, having an informal discussion about issues in science and ethics. Please note that the discussion contains bad words that I'm not allowed to say, and knowing my dad, some very inappropriate jokes. God damn it! I don't know how to express myself unless through anger and personal attack! I'm getting very upset! Welcome to Very Bad Wizards. I'm Tamler Summers from the University of Houston. Dave, it's our one-year anniversary. How do you plan to celebrate? Happy anniversary. I'm Tam. I'm Tam. I'm not Tamler. I'm David Pizarro from Cornell University. I'm going to celebrate by getting really drunk and watching Straw Dogs over and over again until I finally realize what it's like to be you and really like that movie. <laughs> <laughs> then we'll be on the same page. It does help brain. to drink. I mean, I will say that. <laughs> it helps you appreciate what you should al- already appreciate sober. But like a lot of life, alcohol just sense. helps you get where you ought to be anyway. <laughs> like Hemingway. <laughs> yes, like Hemingway. I actually think we have a good episode today for our 30th episode and our one-year anniversary because it's sort of a celebratory episode. Yeah, I didn't think we'd make it this far. No, uh, (laughs) nobody did. (laughs) Anyone who knew us when I told about this, they'd be like, oh, yeah, that sounds good. And, you know, and like they might as well have just been making the jerk off motion. Uh, (laughs) That's how I felt when you pitched it to me. It's true. But that's because I was actually. God, how long ago did I pitch this to you? Oh, man. Let's see. August 30 is when we did that episode, but it took us so long to actually get around to recording it so and we recorded a bunch of them before that we just kept fucking up the audio and well and we didn't know what we were doing and so actually (laughs) well now we know at least how to record we still don't know what we're doing and broadly speaking but uh i was uh listening to i was cleaning up some of the audio files and i was listening to some of our early attempts and it's just like we might as well have been talking through tin cans and strings um (laughs) it was just so bad so yeah a lot of credit uh, goes to you for just because you're better at this audio tech stuff than I am, so you uh, figured out a lot. Well, uh, you've come for- a long way, my friend, from uh, throwing your earphones at the screen. <laughs> well, <laughs> I, I still, still do that. Do that. <laughs> yeah. Anyway, our our top five today is our, well. It's not like we always do a top five. No, yeah, uh, our fact, topic is top five, and we've never done a top five. We've done a top three, but that was sort of a negative one. Uh, that was top three things we hate about our own field, and also one about the other person's field. This is uh, a celebratory uh, top five. It is top five. Do we even have a like what to call this? Top five of my fav of our favorite books, or are the most in- the books that most inspired us? Or yeah, I, you know, it's in some ways it's even just best to to say uh, top five books because 
then people can construe it however they want. And I think that maybe you and I even construe, construed it a little differently. But, uh, but it's a tough question because I, I don't like favorite because some of the books yeah, I disagree with or I wouldn't read again or I wouldn't necessarily – well, no, I guess I would recommend them all. But uh, Yeah, I would recommend all of my books. Yeah. That was a great we'll, – we'll go over our ground rules. Our post-hoc ground rules. Our post-hoc ground rules <laughs> when we get to the list. You can celebrate our 30th episode – by rating us on iTunes, liking us on Facebook, and by supporting us by click through on Amazon under the support page. On our website, you just click on Amazon and everything you buy, a small percentage of that will go to supporting the podcast. Uh, you can also directly support it via donate button. And that's it. Yeah, we know, I've, been, I've been indirectly supporting uh, our podcast by buying. I just moved into a new apartment now. I'm back. I'm back in Ithaca from my stay in Toronto, and so I've been buying all my furniture on Amazon Prime. <laughs> oh, nice. Uh, um, ratings on getting... iTunes, by the way. Uh, What's that? That's been slowing down the ratings on iTunes. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. That always helps us find a new audience. Um, but think. you know, we our audience has been growing, and I think that that one of the things that that uh, that marks this year is as just a good one is having seen the growth um, of like the obvious growth of our listeners um, across the year. And, you know, we, we, we record such long podcasts that uh, people who find it have like, you know, 400 hours of catch up. So we've been getting lots of email and some of it is from episodes that, that people who are new to, to our show um, have just heard. And so, so the email has been piling up and we haven't gotten around to answering them all, but believe us when we say that we read them all and hopefully we'll, we will respond to most of it. Uh, but Tamla, you had, you had one particular email that, that you, you really felt the need to address. Well, I mean, I want to, there's a lot of emails that I feel the need to address, but this one is, is one of the ones from about a month back that I've been wanting to respond to and we haven't had a chance yet. And it's from the listener Connor Ebbs, who lives in Ireland, and he's referring, ironically, to the Straw Dogs episode. Uh, he says, first of all, that he hasn't seen the movie, and he apologizes. But he says he wants to address the short debate you had with Yoel regarding responding to insults. And in particular, the example Tamler gave of dealing with someone uh, making insulting remarks about your spouse. On your own admission, you haven't had much experience with violence. I think your attitudes on dealing with threat or insult, verbal or otherwise, are reckless and irresponsible so i, I, wanna, I, I mean just at, at at that point i was just such a fan of of connor <laughs> <laughs> well first of all i think that the example it was one i gave <laughs> yeah then, i think it was one that you gave and one that i was sort of referring back to it was from a, a revenge way yeah. back uh, on, on, our, on our, one of our revenge episodes now look regarding that reckless and irresponsible part our views my view they may be wrong they may be stupid, but they're not, I, I can't see how they're reckless and irresponsible because that implies that somebody out there might be listening to our advice and <laughs> having that influence their life or behavior in some way or listening to our podcast. And, and let me just say right now, like if you're doing that, if you're listening to us bullshit on this podcast <laughs> – and using that as some sort of guide or influence to how you should act or behave, you have a lot more problems than just getting into the odd <laughs> oh, yeah. bar fight every now. 
<laughs> well, let me let me defend Connor a bit, right? So he says, right. "I think your attitudes on dealing with a threat or insult, verbal or otherwise, are reckless and irresponsible." And and so it could be that just you you are being reckless and irresponsible to your to yourself, to your family. Okay, um, well, if that's true, then uh, that I understand it. I was just interpreting it the other way, like the idea that somebody's going to hear somebody, us get, right. go to a bar and like somebody's going to say something about us. He's like, "Oh, those guys on Very Bad Wizards said you well, should." <laughs> and before you hide behind this, it was your example, and <laughs> you were the one who strongly. It was like a, your friend, and you yeah. thought your friend was out of his fucking mind for yeah. just taking the insult and walking away. Now, <laughs> this guy grew up. It, it looks like well in, in, in some in yeah in some part of Dublin that's rough and right. Dublin of course you know there's a lot of drinking there there's a lot of fighting at least that's the stereotype he goes into the, the email is great like yeah, he goes into all these different factors that make it really stupid to stand up to a guy in a bar different factors that are outside of your control like you even if you're highly trained in martial arts self-defense and boxing none of which i think either of us are uh, even no, lowly no. trained in uh then the threat you don't know what the threat is you don't know if the guy's on drugs you don't know what the uh environment is like if they're going to be using chairs tables plates uh, no, you know, and and I have to say, like I, uh, I and legally is the last one, yeah, go right, ahead. yeah, and and, and uh, you'll get in trouble. And all of that, all of that stuff is just totally right. I mean, I I grew up in you know in this straight up middle class suburban area of Southern California, but during a time where unfortunately everybody wanted to be kind of a gangster in in the early mid nineties, and uh, you know I've seen people get in arguments and fights and run out to their to their cars and pull out guns from their trunk and then rush back in. And it's like, it's true. You never know, right? You never know. It's it's just sort of an, an attitude. I am for thinking before you do stuff like that. What I'm not for is not even thinking that that's not even thinking that you would have to down-regulate to like not punch someone in the face for insulting your wife so deeply or your significant other. I, you know, all all of what Connor says is right. It's just that if your automatic response is like, eh, then I just – I don't know. I think See, I think have. you're being a weasel. I, I totally disagree with that. I think where I disagree with Connor is that I think our ability to read a situation is greater than he thinks it is. And you can – read a situation where you're not putting your life in danger you're you're putting maybe an ass whipping in danger but you're not putting your life in danger See, nobody's going to take a gun i mean you, yeah no, it this could is, possibly this is exactly, happen no this but, is exactly this is exactly what shows your naivete B- besides all you need is one mistake Right, like all you need is one mistake, and some fucker goes and gets a gun from his car. And if you've never been in a situation where someone runs and gets a gun from their car, then then good, good for you. But I don't think it's because you're an expert reader. Of no, it's because I tend to hang out places where the guys don't run and get they so get into fights, live, so but they don't live, like they keep it with like with without handguns. Well, then you can live by your rules, but many many people can't. I mean, but here's the uh, yes, I know many people can't, but I wasn't talking about many people, and some people they absolutely have to keep a lid on it because I agree, it is not worth risking getting into a gunfight. It's like that, uh, that you know, the the swingers, the swingers. That's just what I was about to say. <laughs> 
Yeah, no, I think that that's a good point. But but you're you're placing a lot of emphasis on your ability to distinguish when to back down and when not to. And I think all Connor's saying is, how much do you want? To, how much of your safety do you want based on on that knowledge? So I spent a summer in East LA uh, working at a day camp when I was in college, and it was. It was right at this intersection where there were essentially divided up the the local area into four, and there were the four of the biggest uh, Mexican street gangs were on that corner. And I, even though I'm Latin American, like I walked around looking like a white boy, ba- backing down was just the rule. <laughs> like I would just, I would never sure. have not backed down like there, right? Exactly, because you understood the difference between that and being in some Ithaca bar where some right. college punk is, you know, like talking <laughs> shit to you and you're just not going to take it, right? Uh, you- of course, of course. Uh, and that's why what I was saying was that the attitude of not being insulted um, is, is the one I, I am defending. And the, and the question of when you actually get in someone's face or not is an extra question. Like, I just don't like the fact that somebody, but see, you can't, that somebody would you say... You can't not be willing to be insulted and take every insult and just walk away no, from it. I'm not it. saying take every insult. I'm just saying that, like, if the, the behavior isn't the key... If the question is, should we be reasonable, then the answer is yes. But all I'm saying is that it reflects something about you if... If someone comes up and like yells, you know, some guy comes up and yells at your wife that she's a cunt and you're not, your thought isn't even like, I want to punch him so badly, but like, maybe I shouldn't. If it's just like, well, I'll let it slide. Then that's, that's what to me is, is what I'm arguing. But it's then to me that you don't really stand up for, you don't, it's not really bother. It doesn't really bother you unless you're willing to take some sort of risk. That's absurd. Not, not risk your life. No, it's all right. Then, then it's, it's reprehensible. It's reprehensible for you to just keep it in, be really pissed off, but not willing to stand up for it. Um, no. In any way that risks your personal safety, not every way that risks your personal safety. I, I don't even know what we're arguing about because all I'm saying is that you should be upset, and that sometimes that upset should lead you to confront, and sometimes it shouldn't. That's okay. exactly what you're saying. Okay, well that then right. we agree. But I right. thought what like, you were what saying was it just doesn't matter. I mean, it doesn't matter whether you respond or not. All that matters is that you're upset. And I and while well, I agree that you'd have to be, you know, this is Dukakis's problem, right? That you'd have to be a somewhat of a robot. But not to be upset at all. Well, so this it goes beyond. We'll get this. You yeah. know what? We'll this way, we're, we're we're we can pick this back up in yeah. our in our top five discussion because the one. So Tamler and I didn't tell each other about our top five books, but there was one book that we um, that we unwittingly leaked to each other that that is on our both of our top fives, and this is at the very heart of the question. And the question is: there. Imagine there are two people: one who always retaliates whenever he's slighted, but actually feels nothing. Right? He just does it as a rule. There's like a propositional rule. If this happens, I will do this, but actually isn't angry or upset. Another person who, when the slight is sufficient, he gets really, really angry. And in the cases where he's unable to regulate his anger, then he retaliates. In some cases, he actually uh, realizes that he should not. The, the only thing I'm saying is that uh, this, the value of, of the, the emotion is what, what I think is, is – the powerful part of this whole like this whole reaction and this response to revenge is not in the behavior it's in you being the kind of person who gets insulted and angry i agree to an extent but if you 
always just get insulted and angry and never just never have the willingness to actually do anything about it, then it's like your Nietzsche's, you know, it's ressentiment. It's just that you're harboring all this bitterness and eventually you're going to go shoot up a, a bus station or maybe something i like just that. think that you you've been lucky to be able to be in the situation i mean that's Not, definitely possible right because if you're in enough situations where you actually have to second guess then i think that you then it would be just a, i mean I, I look i agree that i've been lucky and it could be that one day you know as i get older it becomes less and less likely that this will happen to me when i was younger it was more likely you know all right let's take should we take a quick break and come back with break. our top 5 feel kind of basic today top five side ones track ones Janie Jones clash from the clash mm. let's get it on Marvin Gaye from let's get it on Nirvana smells like teen spirit off of Nevermind. oh no Rob that's not obvious enough not at all how about uh, point of no return on point of no return Lewis so you can uh, get up shut up, shut up. <laughs> white light white heat Velvet Underground. Okay, that would be on my list. Though not and on mine. Massive Attack, No Protection. The song is Radiation oh, Ruling the Nation. kind of a new record. Excuse very me, I was in, in a minute. Very nice, Rob. A sly declaration of new classic status slipped into a list of old safe ones. Very pussy. Excuse me, I was in, in a life. minute. Couldn't you be any more obvious than that, Rob? How about, uh, I don't know, The Beatles? How about fucking, fucking Beethoven? Track one, side one of the Fifth Symphony. How can someone who has no interest in music own a record store? Welcome back to Very Bad Wizards. Uh, all right, let's get into... Well, I guess, you know, T Tambo, this was your pitch, and, and you just broadly said... Let's do an episode about our top five books. Um, I wanted to do a positive uh, right. episode. You know, like, I, although I think we're fairly optimistic people, and it seems like we've done more trashing of things than celebrating of things. So I just wanted to. So celebratory. So, uh, so we actually left it at that. And so I'll just, I think we should maybe then in turn go, uh, go into what our criteria was when we were coming up with our list. So what I was thinking was, a book that was broadly speaking about what we do, about somehow about psychology or philosophy or science broadly, um, you know, so no fiction. And that was, that was both influential for me and in that it, it sort of made me see the world in a different light um, or, or was early on enough that it inspired me uh, to, to study what I study or that was just so um, – just so 
elegant in its in the way that it defended its thesis, whether that thesis is right or wrong, um, and and uh, we'll get into that. So so that's broadly speaking how how I came up with my list. Yeah, my ground rules are similar. These aren't necessarily the best books I've ever read, but they are. The ones that had a huge impact on me, either that they inspired me to go into philosophy in the first place. I mean, I was an English major, adrift a little bit in my 20s. That was one thing that I chose, and a a couple of those are from there. The other thing is, once I was in philosophy, if a book sort of helped reshape the way I approached philosophy in some way, then I included that. They can be a little dated, my books, and some of them are, but I, I, I didn't include them if if I don't think they're worth reading today. And one that, I, the, one that I struggled with and ended up leave, leaving off is The Moral Animal by Robert Wright. Now that puts in, that that's, falls in the category of a book that totally inspired me and that made me want to get into some business where I could write about these kinds of issues. Um, it's a book, broadly speaking, about the Darwinian approach to morality. I'm just not sure the, the sort of evolutionary psychology, the type of evolutionary psychology that he presents in that book, and I haven't gone back and read it in a while, but I'm not sure if it holds up. It's not, that, it's not to say that I don't think you should read the book. I think it's a remarkable book. It's beautifully written. But that was a book that could have made my list if all I cared about was this made me want to go into philosophy. Uh, yeah, but I but I but I left it off. Also, I include books that are fun to read. So I didn't. Not that I would do this anyway. But nothing overly technical, or nothing that you have to be a professional philosopher or psychologist to enjoy. Right. And that's one of the reasons I'll just say right now that my list isn't full of philosophy books. You my, know, because my list has like two. Oops. Psychology, but I don't know. Well, even then, I'm not even sure they're psychology. <laughs> but, yeah. but yeah, but yeah. So well, it's that's broad. more psychology books than I have philosophy <laughs> books. I have a bunch of honorable mentions that are philosophy right. books. Uh, all right, should we get to it? You want to start? Okay, let's start. Okay, so I'll. My, mine are lo- very loosely ranked uh, because. Because these are these are all uh, uh, these are all books I love. Actually, these are all books that I've read more than once. Um, so I'll start with the the Odd Man Out, which is a book that I read when I was fairly young. I think I was, uh, you know, like thirteen or twelve, thirteen, something like that. It's it's really just a collection of anecdotes, autobiographical anecdotes, and it's uh, Surely You're Joking, Mister Feynman by by Richard Feynman. Oh, um, interesting. Yeah. Yeah, and I, I might, I may have even read this when I was in, I think, sixth or seventh grade. There was a time there when I was just, uh, when I was convinced that I wanted to be a physicist until I realized that I sucked at math. Right. Um, but you know, Feynman, who was, for those of you who who may not know, was a was a physicist who is was you know the the granddaddy of quantum field theory, um, but just just uh, just very super super sharp and well obviously extremely intelligent he won the nobel prize one of the first one of the first times i ever s- sort of saw him or knew who he was was when he uh, did a demonstration on uh, why the the space shuttle challenger failed why it blew up and he did this by dipping one of these o-rings in water in ice water and showing how brittle it was um but this book is just a loose collection of his own anecdotes uh from from growing up and what it communicated to me that I found so valuable was his attitude toward figuring things out and this playfulness that he brought to scientific discovery. 
and also this sort of uh, this d- dislike of pompous, um, you know, sort of hoity-toity int- intellect um, in favor of a very, very straightforward approach. And that straightforward approach to science um, is, I think, one of the things that makes everything that he writes and everything that's written about him so good to read, just to give you a good sense of how one should approach science. Um, later on in his life. It's very funny, too. I mean, I read it a lot. I mean, he was such a character. And, you know, it's one of those things that you would never think of of a a physicist as being so charismatic. Um, But, he, you know, he played the bongo drums that he picked up when he was in Brazil. Stop talking. What do you play, the leather jacket? Play the bongos, man. He used to say that whenever he was introduced as a physicist, people would always mention that he was also a bongo player. But uh, he said, you know, no one, whenever I go to play bongos, no one says, and he's also a physicist. <laughs> play the bongos, man. Uh, so anyway, that's, that's, uh, that's the, least, the least explicitly scientific book on my list, but one that, that, that really, I think, was formative in, in shaping my attitude towards science and showing me that I, that it was something that, that that curiosity was something that I shared that I wanted to cultivate. And that could be fun, you know? Yeah. And it was fun. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, That's a good one. My number five is groundwork of the metaphysic of morals by Immanuel Kant. Um, this book just totally, no, I'm just kidding. I was, you know, you had me going for a second. I was like, is he going to say because he disagrees with it or, oh my God. No, no, no. These aren't the books that made me want to quit philosophy. (laughs) Yeah. I I might put Mein Kampf before that. I'm not sure, but I think I might. (laughs) No, no, no. Uh, I always have to hide that one on my shelf whenever I Skype with you. (laughs) Yeah, you do. It's like gay porn. Uh, (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> which you also have to hide. Uh, Nazi game porn. <laughs> I didn't know that genre existed. All right. My, uh, my real number five, it's from 1944, and it is a novel. I didn't have the no fiction rule. And it's called The Razor's Edge by Somerset Mom. Have you ever read that? No. Anyone no. who knows me knows that this book just had a profound impact on my life. Uh, I read it, you know, around the time you probably should read it, which is early 20s, uh, or I guess it was was a mid-20s, but I was very immature. And uh, it's a novel about a young man... Who named Larry Durrell, who, who goes to war. It's one of these post-war novels, and he comes back, and he's engaged to be married. He has a good job set up for him, but he doesn't want the job. It's a good job in business. I mean, you see this kind of thing. It's, it sounds a little cliched. He doesn't want the job, and he, and he doesn't take the job. Instead, he has a little bit of money, and he just spends it living fairly frugally and going to the library and just just reading all day and then you know uh the, the the narrator somerset mom who's you know the author but also puts himself as the narrator finds uh finds him is looking for him on a on a on a mission to convince him to take the job because he knows his fiance uh and he finds him just pouring over william james's the principles of psychology which is a honorable mention for me and you know if we were doing top 10 it would have made my list it's such a great book and and then he travels and you know he he ends up living a life of a kind of a semi-mystic but 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 mom is you know a british writer 
who's all, you know very into high society and but also a very deep thinker, a very philosophical novelist too. And it's a great combination. You know, it's not one of these like hippie dude. You got to find the meaning of life. Don't go. The corporations suck and that kind of book. <laughs> you know, he has a really good satire and a very also critical eye on what this guy is doing. And it's a very funny book. It's very easy to read. It's very accessible, but it's also it's it's, it's really beautiful. I recommend it for. I, there was a time where I used to just give it to everybody. Like I gave it to anybody I knew and told them to read it. And, and, and everyone enjoys it. But for me, I was in a similar kind of situation. I had just graduated. Well, not graduated. I had just taken two years of playwriting school. I didn't totally know what I wanted to do. I didn't think I, I, I wanted to do that. I was in Boulder, uh, Colorado. And it just kind of gave me an idea. I had I, I had a little money because my mom had died a few years ago. I was the only beneficiary and uh, had some life insurance money. It just gave me the idea that there was so much about life and ideas that I wanted to find out about, but I had not sufficiently devoted myself to in college. And so I literally started emulating this guy to a large extent, just going to the library, sitting there reading stuff that I thought I should have read for hours and hours and hours at a time. I I sort of missed that period. It was a little bit lonely, but it was also just like, it, it totally shaped me. Like most of what I've read, you know, that you know, will follow on this list. A lot of that I just read during that time. And it just sort of gave me, I don't know, the courage to just chill out. Like, I I clearly didn't quite know what I wanted to do with my life, to just chill out. Now, I was lucky in one sense, not lucky for the reason, that I had the ability not to have to work full-time during this period and, and, uh, and, and, and just, you know, spend so much time doing this stuff. But, like, and also the discipline to just sit in libraries and barns and nobles. I mean, for, like, four years, I would spend four or five hours a day just reading and... And you know, like, you know, like I, like I don't do now. No, I it, miss those times in my life too. Uh, I mean, it's, I'm, it's just, I'm so wistful for those, those like summers that I would just, I would just go read. Just you know, now I'm like, oh my god, I, I read email and journal articles that are that I have to review, blog you know. posts and blog yeah, posts. Uh, yeah, yeah. So I don't know. It's a, I'm very nostalgic for that period. I think unlike say Kerouac, which just made me a drunk, but which that, I still is, love. Is how, is which I still love. Well, it's one who's overdetermined, but you know, like unlike some of these other, I for a while I was a phase guy. I was very easily influenced by what I, by what I read. You know, if I was reading Hemingway, I was getting uh, wine skins, and like, it was always alcohol. <laughs> Uh, this was one of the first that inspired me to do something other than drink. It, and it's also just a really great book. I really recommend it. This is, of, of all my books, one of the ones I recommend the most. So The Razor's Edge by Somerset Mom. My number four is a book that uh, – okay, now what I'm about to say is going to sound like I'm, I'm uh, in some ways – uh, I'm going to have to qualify it. But this book was given to me by my older cousin. I had a 10-year-old uh, t- uh, cousin that was 10 years older than me who um, it was in college at the time studying to be an electrical engineer. And so he was pretty geeky. And he sort of saw when I was in – I think it was the summer between fourth and fifth grade that I, that I really enjoyed some of the, some of the topics um, that are in this book. And so he handed this to me knowing full well that there's no way that a you know, whatever nine, ten-year-old could process it. But the book is Gödel Escher Bach, 
um, an eternal oh, yeah. braid by Douglas Hofstadter. That was so, one I read during that period. Yeah, yeah. That's so, intense. And so the reason I say it's going to sound, it's, you know, so I still can't understand the whole book now. So don't. It's not as if I was doing set theory when I was ten. So what I Wait. really read when I was ten was. Um, Every chapter starts with a dialogue uh, between tortoise and the and Achilles and the tortoise um, that just presents an idea like uh, self-reference or infinity or you know all these paradoxes that that is just so playful and well done and you know he takes after Lewis Carroll who borrowed those from Zeno um, those characters from Zeno and and it just fascinated me and you know i would try to read the the meaty parts and and realize how it, to this day i'm not sure when i was trying to come up with a way to summarize what this book is about i mean broadly speaking it's about the possibility that the human that uh, of that meaning and uh, can sort of uh, emerge from the human mind yeah, by it's, it's understanding a, you know some of these how, how some of these basic things isn't uh, it a little like society of mind also how like a kind of consciousness can emerge out of no centralized yeah like right. ghost in yeah. the machine kind of uh, kind of right. idea right so there's actually um uh in 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 one of these dialogues uh they talk to a character named Aunt Hillary and Aunt Hillary is just uh, the emergent property of an ant hill. Um, so it's just a bunch of ants, but somehow in concert, they, uh, they you know, much like the fish in, in Finding Nemo, the school of fish. <laughs> um, and so, so there's a lot of ideas about just artificial intelligence and cognitive science that I only realized years later had planted the seed for my interest in, in these topics. So um, so even if you're not into set theory or or the mathematics of infinity, uh, just the the playfulness with which he approaches these these dialogues between the tortoise and Achilles, I think, is, is worth. It's so rewarding while you read it. It's very yeah. cool. It's just, have you like when was the last time you tried to go back and really look at it? Uh, must have assume been you've done it since five years time. ago. Yeah, yeah, it's been longer for me, but. Uh, I just remember thinking, you know, and again, it's it's one of those books that may be too smart for me, but I, I mean, I know it's too smart for me, and in fact, and I don't know if he's wildly wrong and crazy, um, but even if he is, the the playfulness that he demonstrates with these ideas, and they're just uh, you know, just fascinated. What's he doing, Hofstetter? Is he dead? Is he alive? Uh, no, apparently he's alive. It's fu- so funny thing is that uh, I moved into this apartment, and my my new next door neighbors are these two first year uh, physics PhD students, and one of them had um, as his uh, as an undergrad professor, he had Hofstadter, and so I was able to say like, so apparently he's like pretty good friends with Hofstadter. And so I was like, tell that guy that like that book is probably like why I'm here, you know. So he's like, oh, he'd be really – so I, I think at Indiana or something. Oh, um, really? Uh, yeah. I'll, I'll double check. Uh, my number four is a tie, which if you like top five podcasts is considered a bit of a cheat. But it's uh, – Indiana, Indiana University, by the way. He's a, still a professor there. He is. Cognitive okay. science. It is the two books on honor that – I don't know. I love the most, influenced me the most. It's not uh, kind of a cheat. You can't just put two books in a slot. <laughs> that's like, that's like, I can't choose between these books. And, uh, and, and you know, the honor of books meant so much to me that, you know, like I don't want to ha- take two. Then make them number four and number three, you dumbass. <laughs> well, I didn't. One of them is Culture of Honor 
by okay. Nisbet and Cohen. It was That's a book great. that was recommended to me when I was a, I don't know, first year professor at uh, University of Minnesota Morris by Stephen Burks, who's an economics professor. Uh, you know, it, it has. It, it, Nisbet and Cohen were one of the first people to study the phenomenon of honor from a very experimental perspective, and they did that famous experiment of, you know, the people from uh, – their main thesis is that, speaking of insults, people from the South are a lot more prone to respond to insults and get a lot more worked up when they are insulted than people from the North because the South is a culture of honor uh, and has a history of where honor and reputation was more important. And they give a kind of theory of this. You know, these people are descendants of actually Irish uh, frontiers people, <laughs> right? And herders and, you know, it was really important that you had a reputation that you can't fuck with your stuff because if someone did a raid and stole your sheep, then uh, your whole family was completely fucked. And and so they did this experiment at Michigan. I, have, I don't know if we've described it or not, have we? Uh, if not, uh, I'm describing it again. Uh, yeah, 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 dude, just go ahead. It's uh, where they had, they said they were bringing in a bunch of students uh, for some sort of cognitive task but on their way in, they had someone bump them on the shoulder, say, like, watch out, asshole, and then go into another uh, room so that, you know, the guy c- – you couldn't do anything about it. And then the cognitive experiment that they were actually doing were actually testing how pissed off each of the uh, participants were. And it turned out, uh, according to their hypothesis, you know, confirming their hypothesis, that people from the South took that a lot more, you know, in a lot of different ways. Like they did some tests where they would always choose the violent word uh, more and also their uh, their hormone level was more raised and um, and, and a bunch of other very cool experiments. Uh, and it's just a – it's a great book. It's very short. Anybody who's interested in this topic should read it. I came out of – uh, graduate school is just a f- optimistic free will skeptic that was my thing this just totally this among with uh, along with a few other books just made me totally shift the focus of my research to the cross-cultural differences in the way people think about responsibility and revenge and the cross-cultural differences and attitudes hugely important for my work i mean you know foundational so so yeah. that's the first one. The second one is Humiliation by William Ian Miller. He's a law professor at University of Michigan who works on uh, – well, he, he's a law professor, but his main subject of research is Icelandic honor cultures. And Humiliation, I mean, he has a bunch of great books, but this is probably my favorite on the topic of honor. It also – and I'll, I'll stop after this. It gives one of the best – explanations of honor, one of the most concise explanations of honor. Um, This is from the book. He says, for in an honor-based culture, there is no self-respect independent of the respect of others, no private sense of, hey, I'm quite something, unless it was confirmed publicly. Honor was not just a matter of the individual. It necessarily involved a group, and the group included all those people worthy of competing with you for honor. 
your status in this group was the measure of your honor and your status was achieved at the expense of the honor of, of the other group members who are not only your competitors for scarce honor but also the arbiters of whether you had it or not. And this is both a really interesting, you know, I think a really good definition of what honor is and it's also an interesting contrast to this idea of private self-esteem and, and, and self-worth as something that only comes from the inside and it doesn't matter what anyone else thinks. So while Culture of Honor alerted me as to the cultural differences, this book also sort of alerted me to how many of these aspects of the Culture of Honor I think we all share, or at least I share, to, uh, to a significant right. extent. Great book. Right. Love it. He also wrote this, this wonderful book called The Anatomy of Disgust, and it's, it's, mm. it's, it's one of my favorite books. That, it's not on my list, but it is. My number three is, is uh, it sort of share, it shares something that, that I think Culture of Honor has, which is it offers this explanation of these observed differences by, by pointing to these historical features of, of society and how it could, it, it could explain um, current differences. An even broader use of this uh, of this method of explanation comes from um, Jared Diamond, who ah. guns, guns, germs, and steel. Yeah, uh, which is just to me an, an amazing book. And in fact, I'll keep this short. I, I there's a website called Edge.org, and each year they ask a question of uh, of some people, and it's sort of a yearly question. And the question a couple of years ago was, or one year ago was, what is your favorite deep, elegant, or beautiful explanation? And because I already took the time to write this, I'll just read uh, what I said about it. Uh, one of the most elegant explanations I've encountered in the social sciences comes courtesy of Jared Diamond and is an outlined in his wonderful book, Guns, Germs, and Steel. Diamond attempts to answer an enormously complex and historically controversial question, why certain societies achieve such historical dominance over others, by appealing to a set of very basic differences in the physical environments from which these societies emerge, such as differences in the availability of plants and animals suitable for domestication. These differences, Diamond argues, gave, gave rise to a number of specific advantages, such as greater immunity to disease, that were directly responsible for the historical success of some societies. And so I end with saying, like, I don't know if he's right, right? I'm not an expert in these, and I'm sure it's controversial, and some people very much disagree with him. But that appeal to these basic mechanisms to explain such an observe a complex phenomenon and be able to, to offer an explanation um, by appeal to more uh, simple phenomena and, and mechanisms, that is, to me, the essence of scientific explanation. And this, there's, there's a, a sort of theme in my enjoyment of, of certain books and certain thinkers. Feynman was really, really big into what scientific explanation is. You can't just redescribe something. You can't just be tautological. And so much of, of I think, modern psychology borders on, on just redescription or tautology that to hear a good explanation, like it's – it's just for so an, such an important phenomenon, too. For such an important phenomenon, yeah. and it's just so it's satisfying. Um, I'm blanking on the name of, of the psychologist who who argues that uh, explanation is like the scientific the scientific version of orgasm. When you get that moment, you're like, oh, like that's that that makes sense. Oh, like, that to me is yeah. like the biggest joy. <laughs> yeah, uh, exactly. That's how I do science. Yeah. Uh, so, all right. Go for your top. Are, are, are the pages of Guns, Germs, and Steel kind of sticking together in your well, copy? You know, That's I, why you can't lend it out. 
<laughs> I have an I have an ebook, so my iPad is always sticky. <laughs> yeah, well, I imagine it's st- <laughs> it's sticky for a huge number of reasons. What percentage of things on your iPad don't you jerk off to? <laughs> I'll tell you what. When I Facetime with you, it's dry as hell. <laughs> Look, I'm glad. It's not like I go, oh shit, Dave doesn't jerk off. It's not like an insult. <laughs> okay, go for your fucking cheaters. Are you going to have three on the... No, on, everything on the, on is the... totally kosher after that. Okay. <laughs> Our younger audience may not know this, but Richard Dawkins, there was a time where he <laughs> devoted his considerable theoretical talents and, and his borderline genius at just writing and explaining to something other than making religious people feel stupid. And I'm, of course, referring to his early work. The Selfish Gene and My Choice for Number Three, The Extended Feeling. Phenotype, I think are just masterpieces of really intelligent popular science. Now look, the details of the selfish gene and then I think the more mature work, extended phenotype, they may be off. You know, I'm actually more of a fan now of the dual inheritance theory uh, uh, of an honorable mention of mine, uh, Richardson and Boyd, and not by genes alone, which, by the way, has a lot of affinities with, I think, it's very complementary to the guns, germs, and steel yeah. uh, view. It's just at a more micro level. In spite of that, if if somebody asked me, what book should I read about Darwinism? I would tell them, you know, those two books and maybe also The Blind Watchmaker, because he's just such a master at explaining these theories with so much exuberance and intelligence detail. You know, it's not like some of these popular books which err on the side of being too breezy, you know, and trying yeah, to make yeah. too many pop culture references like we yeah. do, like we, right. <laughs> like, our, like our podcast. It's just, it, it, it's, it, it's perfect. And it just got me in. Like, I, I went into graduate school wanting to do philosophy of biology because I was so into these books. And, so, and you know, they introduced me. And I'll say one last thing about the extended phenotype. The first chapter is a masterpiece of philosophy. It, uh, it's called, or it's called genetic determinism and gene selectionism, but it really exposes the myth of genetic determinism. And he takes people like Stephen Rose to task. There's nothing different about thinking that genes influence your behavior when it comes to like blame and moral responsibility than think the environment influences your behavior. And he says, yeah. people seem to have little difficulty in accepting the modifiability of environmental effects on human development. If a child has had bad teaching and mathematics, it is accepted that the resulting deficiency can be remedied by extra good teaching the following year. But any suggestion that the child's mathematical deficiency might have a genetic origin is likely to be greeted with something approaching despair. If it is in the genes, it is written, it is determined. And then he just makes the point that there's no reason for expecting genetic influences to be any more irreversible than environmental ones. And it was, it, it, the whole, you got to read the whole chapter, but it's so important. It's such a common misconception of anybody right. saying there's a biological basis, biological predisposition to anything. The idea that it can't be changed just because, you know, there are statistical differences based on your DNA. And, and, and for some reason, people never think that about the environment. And that's been supported over and over again in psychology experiments uh, that you know some of which we've discussed it's just a great it's it's a great book and then the rest of the book really does just a beautiful job of explaining his genes eye view of natural selection and it's just it's awesome whether you agree with it or not it's awesome right i i agree um uh, i i just have <clears throat> a quick little anecdote about about dawkins when i when i met dawkins to do this documentary and they had me discuss him there was this moment where i, I had this sort of very surreal moment where 
you know, one of the chapters in, in Selfish Gene that I actually just thought didn't go anywhere was his chapter on memetics. Yeah. And it, it's, I mean, it was a great idea. I just, you know, I, I just don't think that it's, it's that fruitful to think of uh, memes as genes. Uh, but the word meme that he coined right now uh, now is used so much to refer to uh, to anything that sort of goes viral on the internet. Yeah. And so as part of uh, as part of talking to to Dawkins and discussing him, the producer really wanted me to gross him out. Um, and I was very I was sheepish about what I was going to show him. And she's like, no, 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 show him like some sex stuff, like just any like some, show some real gross sex stuff. And there, so there, there are these memes that are really, really gross sexual things that I don't recommend any of our viewers go uh, see any of these. But there's one called Lemon Party, which is essentially three old men filleting each other. And the way that these, uh. these were from early days of the internet, the way it would work is like, I would say like, Hey, Tamler, check out this cool website. And then yeah. you click on it and then you'd be like forced to watch it. But so, so I'm showing Dawkins and then yeah, I'm saying at some point, yeah, this is a meme on the internet. And I'm like, oh, weird that the guy who invented the concept of a meme is now getting shown what what this has become. Like, like your word now refers to like to three like seventy five year olds blowing each other. Nice job, nice job, Dockets. It's <laughs> fruitful. Yeah, uh, yeah, no. Did you show him? T- I remember we talked about this. Two girls, one cup, too. No, like the I other horrible one that was. I, d- gonna- I didn't show him that because I've never actually watched it because I can't. I cannot bear to. Unlike the lemon party, which you've. I'm not homophobic and Asian. You've, book- you've bookmarked. <laughs> I'm definitely against. Yeah, no, I hate all those things. Like I hate all like those disgusting sex things, whether it's uh, you know women eating shit well, yeah, or well, men <laughs> blowing each other. It's all disgusting. Like I, I, I don't get it. It's not fun at all. Uh, we'll put up. We'll put what up. did he do? Did you do you have a link to? He was a trooper. He was a trooper. Uh, yeah, uh, we'll put up a link. At, um, uh, Matt tweeted it out, but I'll put up a link to to the little segment where, yeah. where I have to show him gross things. Uh, I mean, the, right. your point, right, was sometimes disgust. It just really is wrong, <laughs> right? Disgust can be a signal that no, something that is wrong. Counting down our top five favorite or slash most inspiring slash just books that we love. Dave, what's your number two? 
so my number, I'm at number two. And uh, by the way, I think that maybe on Facebook it will it will be good to ask ask our listeners to put post their number five with links. Um, I think that, that to post their top fun. their top five. Yeah, 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 and and so we can see what other people think. So my number two is is a short and sweet book, and in fact, I'm going to immediately make enemies in my own department for putting it up here. It's Jerry Fodor's Modularity of Mind. Um, and this is one of those books where uh, it's the reason I love it is it's uh, it's short. It offers uh, again uh, a wonderful explanation, an attempt at an explanation about how how at least some part of the mind works. And it was enormously generative in terms of the the research that came out after after Fodor made these claims. Now Fodor's a philosopher, but this is really a cognitive science book. I mean, his he starts off with trying to essentially describe what the organization of the mind would have to look like um, for it to produce our cognition, our perception. Now we use the term Fodorian module to to describe the mechanisms, the organizational structures that Fodor described. And his basic also idea Fedorian was... Also Fodorian hat, right, is named <laughs> after? <laughs> yes. It's a terrible um, and yeah. And Fodor's guide. <laughs> yeah, right. So just in a nutshell, I mean, Fodor essentially says uh, that the, the claim that he defends is that the mind is, is composed of a bunch of what we can think of as small little organs that are dedicated to a specific task. So uh, we have modules that take uh, input from the environment. Use some sort of symbolic rules and and change that input and then present the output to to a more general purpose system. Um, that's all. That's all I'll go into. But it was a very very controversial claim. But the, perhaps the most controversial claim is that that these modules are um, impervious to influence from higher level processes. So so. When your visual system is interpreting, say, the length of lines or the, the shape of an angle, <clears throat> your thoughts about it or beliefs about it or desires don't influence those that low-level perception because it's cognitively impenetrable. Those lower-level modules are impenetrable. Fodor himself is disagrees with with many people nowadays who who take the modular account as an explanation of sort of the whole mind. And in particular, he wrote a very cranky book right. um, against Steven Pinker called The Mind Doesn't Work That Way. Um, and what he accuses Pinker of is saying like, he said basically like, no, you know, I I never meant that the whole mind was like this, only that some some very low-level processes uh, are are modular in the way that I meant. And then, of course, there are people who argue that, that Fedorian modules are just a, a figment of Fodor's imagination, that there's no evidence for them, and that there's plenty of top-down So, I mean, it, it goes in line. You mentioned Stephen Pinker. I mean, you know, Cosmides and Tubies. This, it's, it's very much goes in line with the way evolutionary psychologists think about the yeah, mind. Yeah, so right? it's nativist, it's evolutionary, and... Uh, and really, like you know, in cognitive science, it's almost like there are two gangs. There's like the the, yeah. the, the nativists and the empiricists, and so uh, so you know, it's, it's but you can really, be a nativist without having the modular. View. Yeah, and nowadays, I think the word module gets tossed around in, in ways that just it can't that can't be right. Um, at least not in the Fodorian sense. But uh, there is uh, one thing that even if you don't want to read the book, there is a, he wrote a praise to the to the book in BBS, the journal. Uh, behavioral brain sciences and there is i I have to read this little part uh, because it's one of (laughs) it's the very so the the format of this journal is 
uh, somebody writes a Target article. In this case, it was Fodor uh, just just describing what what his book was about, and the Target articles are like you know like thirty. 30 scholars commenting on this. And so in this case, they comment on the actual book. Um, so there is a lot of criticism. This was uh, about a year after the book had been published, which was in 1983. And uh, the very last comment was by a psychologist named Bob Sternberg, Robert Sternberg, who was uh, who was at Yale when I was there. I didn't work with him. I didn't know him very well, but this this guy is he's essentially like a hugely prolific cognitive psychologist who who studied mostly intelligence. But this is what he wrote about the book. Fodor is fond of analogies. Indeed, he believes them to be a basis of much higher order thinking. Perhaps he would then not mind my drawing an analogy between reading modularity and eating a large piece of gourmet cheesecake. Before eating a a piece of gourmet cheesecake, one fully expects to enjoy the experience, even to find it a memorable one. Immediately after the eating, one expects one's stomach to be upset as the piece of cake sits in one's stomach, not lending itself to digest, not easily lending itself to digestion. One knows that the cake will be heavy going and that despite its good taste, the caloric content is perhaps higher than the content in nutrients should merit. Finally, one knows that the piece of cake will probably taste less and less good as one becomes satiated, yet one attempts nevertheless to finish off the piece. Such was my experience with this book. <laughs> so I saw, I read this and I uh, I happened to be in the elevator with Bob Sternberg and I said, uh, uh, Professor Sternberg, because he didn't really know who I was, said, I just read your commentary in uh, BBS on, on Fodor's book and where you compared him to a piece of cheesecake. And he, he's written like 1,500 articles and he looks at me and goes, Haha, did, did I say that? That sounds like something I'd say. <laughs> I think the modularity of mind just just really quickly is the kind of book that you read so that you can understand the field. Yeah. So you can understand why the why we have the debates that we have, why this certain amount of research was generated on this particular question, um, and it it falls into place much more easily uh, if you if you read that. All right, my number two, and we might as well just talk about this together because it's got to be your number one because I know it's on your list, uh, Passions Within Reason by Bob Frank. Yeah, so that's my number one, your number two. Again, not a psychologist or a philosopher, an economist who is here at Cornell and is, is, I'm proud to say, a collaborator of mine and a friend. um, And just just an amazing guy. So so pitch it. Well, I mean, this book... There's two things about it. One, I read this in graduate school, and this, along with Freedom and Resentment, it just just gave me the idea for how I was going to shape my dissertation and how I was going to focus on the emotions and their role. And even though I've changed my view on the sort of philosophical implications of, of it, I haven't changed my view. It's remarkable how much this book holds up. I think it was written in 1988. It is, first of all, just a masterwork of, like, like Dawkins, of just popular writing. It's really clear, really accessible, really fun to read. It's one of these books to just trash the notion that our emotions are always irrational. And he, in a very elegant and beautiful way, shows how our emotions can be rational. Emotions like moral outrage. And it's precisely because they motivate us to go against our short-term self-interest, but in ways that will benefit our long-term self-interest. So what's required is that we are able to 
to signal to other people, either through reputation or through signaling some sort of uh, facial signa- signaling or something like that, that we won't give a shit about our, for- our short-term self-interest. We will punish these people for trying to take advantage of us, and that will make them not want to take advantage of us. And obviously I can't do justice to to the whole theory, but it's just a brilliant book. Everyone should read this book. There's nobody it's, alive it's that shouldn't read this book. Yeah, it's my favorite book on emotion, and it was in in some ways like I, it, it. It always frustrates me that that uh, my favorite book on emotion had to be written by by an economist, but um, but it just presents this theory, this commitment theory, so nicely. And, and as Hemler said, argues that that rationality in the long term is served by short term irrationality, which makes this like the fourth or fifth time that I want to play the foot massage clip from Pulp Fiction. <laughs> <All right>. um, <laughs> because it illustrates this nicely or this I call it the Joe Pesci theory. Um, right. Where like Joe Pesci is a mob as a gangster character in some in Goodfellas and in uh, Casino. Um is the kind of guy who might kill you if you make the wrong joke. Right. And and Knowing that, knowing that he's completely uncontrollable, really does a good job of regulating your behavior around him. <laughs> yeah. So not only would you not insult him, let alone steal money from him or, or do anything like that, there is something to that irrationality. Steven Pinker, in, in an honorable, uh, honorable mention of mine in, in How the Mind Works, calls this the doomsday hypothesis. Um, and Bob Frank po- points out that this is the strategy of mutually assured self-destruction. I mean, mutually assured destruction where, you know, if you've committed to launching a missile attack, uh, if so, if Americans commit to launching a nuclear missile attack on Russia, the minute that Russia launches one on us, uh, then then that serves as a motivator for Russia not to do it. Right. But if we if we if we actually had to make this sort of rational decision every single time uh, we were faced with these, we might say, well, as as Tamler found so offensive. Well, you know, uh, he insulted me, but should I? We're dead anyway. So yeah, uh, yeah. So let's not let's not retaliate. Yeah. Like, what's the point? Right. Um, if you project yeah. that, that projects weakness. And 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 I think the brilliant. Uh, you know, he's not the first person. Thomas Schelling had this right. idea where you have to show that your behavior will be unalterable. And his great metaphor is if in a game of chicken, you know, where the two cars are rushing towards each other, you just rip out the steering wheel and just hold it out the window <laughs> like, right, yeah. so that there's just no way you can turn, right. then right. you're going to win that game of chicken because the guy will know there's no, there's no way he can avoid dying unless he turns out of the way. Or, you know, another great example, Dr. Strangelove, that's, the doomsday why, device, yeah. you know. Right. That's why Pinker calls it the doomsday device. Yeah. Right. Explain, yeah, yeah. yeah exactly. And uh, and what Frank does really nicely is show how the emotions play the role of this motivating factor. You know, what is going to get us? It's hard to get us to go against our short-term self-interest. So having an emotion, that feeling of just outrage, that feeling of this will not stand. That now, of course, it misfires. And Connor Ebbs in our first uh, <laughs> told a bunch of stories about the ways that it can misfire for people and get them some killed. Tragic ones, yes, yeah, some really yeah. tragic ones. Yeah. But the general idea, and especially putting it in an evolutionary context, which he does, is is just beautiful. It's uh, and that's what that's what makes it a brilliant book. Yeah. So he he talks. He you know I learned about signaling theory and evolution from this book. He he offers not only a good theory of how emotions work, why they're actually not completely irrational 
uh, in the long term, but also how they could have evolved. Great examples of arms races in, in you know, in the animal kingdom where uh, a signal has to be costly and difficult in order for it to be of any value. If you could fake, if you could fake being the kind of person who gets vengeance, um, then, then it would just cease to be a valuable signal. And I should say that it's not just revenge and, and all that, that, that this is a lot of, a lot of the examples are also come from just being in love. Yeah. That's an edge. We could talk about that chapter. We could do a yeah, whole episode on that. It's so it's great. I mean, it just it sort of illustrates and kind of describes why when you're when you're in love, the idea of a prenuptial agreement seems so abhorrent, which is, of course, the you know, if you were doing the cost, the, the cost benefit analysis, you would realize that the rates of divorce are su- sufficient enough that if you have substantially more money that you should get a prenuptial agreement signed. But there is something about that signaling that you are head over heels in love and that you would never you would never even think to to sign a prenuptial or ask someone to sign a prenuptial. That that means that that it's uh, it's of good communicative value about about your commitment to that person. It signals a lack of commitment to sign one of those agreements. Yes, exactly. Yeah, yeah. Great book. I'd like to talk about it. You know, maybe that love chapter more because I know some people trash it, and I think that. It, in part by misunderstanding it. Drumroll, so that's your, your that's your number one. That's so I guess we one. skip right to my number one. My number one, I almost didn't think of it, but when I thought of it, it was like, oh, this is definitely my number one. It's not even close. It's, it's my only one who's written by an actual philosopher, although it's a novel. And it is uh, Dennis Diderot's Jacques the Fatalist and His Master. It's a very postmodern novel. Uh, I'll read just the opening. How had they met? By chance, like everybody else. What were their names? What does it matter to you? Where did they come from? From the nearest possible spot. Where were they going? Do we ever know where we're going? What were they saying? The master said nothing, and Jacques said that his captain had said that everything that happens to us down here, good or bad, was written up yonder. There's Jacques the Fatalist in there. And the whole story is just these stories within a story about these two guys traveling, the master and Jacques, the master wanting to hear the story of uh, Jacques' loves, and Jacques sort of uh, getting sidetracked and then telling it and incorporating his fatalism into the story. It's, it's, it's incredibly whimsical, hilarious, very like dirty and raunchy. He published, he couldn't publish it until after his death. Um, and it, and it's one of the great, you know, this is what made me the optimistic free will denier that I was, you know, in graduate school and in my first couple of years out of graduate school because I loved this character so much. And while, you know, there are important differences between fatalism and, uh, and, and, and skepticism about free will and moral responsibility, he essentially uh, had the, you know, the same implications this guy embraced. And this guy had a blast. I mean, this guy had so much fun <laughs> in his life without ever abandoning his theory. You know, he, he, he would backslide on on it and he would know that he was backsliding sometimes but he always kept it in his mind it's really funny it's impossible to describe i i i was able to assign it in my the great books class that i team teach with a bunch of other professors in the honors college here at, at u of h everybody loves it all the students loved it it's just it's it's a hilarious book uh last thing read you the last paragraph because it's a great example of some of the benefits of denying free will. You can tell this to your best friend, Jonathan Schooler and Catherine Vos. Uh, and this is at, at the end where Jacques is now married and these two people that he's with 
uh, you know, he, he's possibly worried that, that they've fallen in love with Jacques' wife. And he says, the narrator says, they have tried to convince me that his master and Deglon has fallen in love with Jacques' wife. I don't pretend to know anything about this, but I'm quite sure that in the evening he would say to himself, if it is written up yonder, Jacques, that you'll be a cuckold, then you may do what you will, my boy. You will be a cuckold. If, on the other hand, it is written up yonder that you won't be, then they may do all they like, and you will never be a cuckold. Sleep then, my friend. Sleep. And he would go to sleep. Now, of course, uh, you know, everything of what I was saying before, it sort of, you know, this, this belies. But, I mean, this whole book is just full of paradoxes and great characters and funny, raunchy stories. And it's just, it, it, it is awesome. I love it. I, 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 and, you know, it made me just excited about philosophy and ideas, but wanting to present them in an entertaining way, which Diderot was very, very good at, and in a, in a very experimental way, too. He was an incredibly experimental. You know, his, his novels are always mix of dialogue and prose and, and, and dirty jokes, and it's just, uh, it's just amazing. He was one of the French philosophs, along with Voltaire and D'Alembert. It's a great time. It's a great, and I couldn't recommend this book more. I love it. It's my favorite. It, it, it has a real mark on being my favorite book of all time. It has a real, you know, it's up there. I've uh, I've not read it. Yeah, I will add it to my to do list. So uh, you will just put links to some honorable mentions. Uh, oh wait, let me just read. I I, I got to read some of them because I feel bad. I'll just read them really really quick. Some of my honorable mentions. Uh, I said Principles of Psychology by William James, Thomas Nagel's Mortal Questions, Homicide by Daly and Wilson, book I love, Revenge: A Story of Hope by Laura Blumenthal. Carl uh, Popper's Open Society and His Enemy, Galen Strawson's Freedom and Belief, hugely influential for me when I read it in graduate school, Alistair McIntyre's After Virtue, Descartes' Error by Antonio Damasio, Isaiah Berlin's The Hedgehog and the Fox, I love, Not by Genes Alone, which I mentioned by Richardson and Boyd, Beyond Good and Evil and Zuth Spake Zarathustra by uh, Nietzsche, love those books, uh, The Fragility of Goodness by Martha Nussbaum, uh, Wild Justice by Susan Jacoby and the Lucifer Effect by Zimbardo. And I'm sure I'm forgetting a ton others, but I had to say them because, you know, maybe to lessen the criticism. How could you not put that on? <laughs> well, you know, these are subjective. So. Yeah. <laughs> there's not even like – there's not even a society that would rank these like the AFI is for film. You know? <laughs> That's true. Um, I, uh, I'm not going to read my list. I will post some, some of the books uh, that, because I don't have them all written out like you, you do. Um, so, so you can see our top fives uh, with links to them. Uh, on our- oh, and Mackie uh- – uh, ethics, inventing right and wrong. You're just being OCD now. I <laughs> know. <laughs> that was when I forgot to write down, but I was like, I got to remember you know to say what? that. Uh, you know, I really thought for number one, you were going to go with Da Vinci Code. Um, oh, it was so tough to leave nice that to off. Be surprised. The yeah. Well, I thought you were going to do some fan fiction, like Star Trek fan fiction. So I'm, I'm kind of amazed. Listen, man, I don't read those. I write them. <laughs> <laughs> That's true. Uh, Just remember, data is fully functional. All right. Join us next time. We don't know what we'll be doing. We do know that a couple guaranteed future guests are. Uh, well, let's not guarantee them. Well, yes. We, uh, very, very, the they have agreed to be on the podcast. They may <laughs> very well have second thoughts. One of them is Lori Santos. Is she a primatologist? 
Actually, the cognitive psychologist. Cognitive yeah. psychologist, guess, but she works I, with I, I don't monkeys. know if you can call those people primatologists as well. Uh, uh, and then also Will Wilkinson, who is a former Cato Institute fellow, writes for The Economist, um, just came out with uh, something for The Daily Beast, but is actually now at the University of Houston doing a creative writing uh, degree. We have an outstanding creative writing program, like top five creative writing program, and he's and he's doing that. Uh, I've been hanging out with him a couple of times. He's a great guy. I'm really looking forward to that. He's he has libertarian leanings, but of the best kind. Uh, um, and he just is. He just wrote this scathing critique of social psychology. I think. Yeah, the happiness of the happiness studies. Yeah. So I look forward to bringing him on. All right. Uh, join us next time on Very Bad Methods. For more information about this episode, including show notes and links, and to listen to other episodes, please visit us at www.verybadwizards.com. Just a very bad wizard.